In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So we missed an important couple of verses last week that connect what I was saying the Sunday before to what I want to say today. After the celebrated Beatitudes, which I tried to explain the last time I was in this pulpit, Jesus says the following, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, he means the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. The law is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament attributed to Moses, and the prophets is everything else, which is read as a kind of commentary on the Torah. So Jesus says his teaching is the fulfillment of the whole of scripture the Torah, and the prophetic commentary on the Torah, which includes the wisdom literature that I referred to last time, most especially the Psalms and the Proverbs, but it also includes the so-called history books, like Joshua and Judges and the books of the Kings. In the mind of Jesus' hearers, these are all words of prophecy, and Jesus is teaching in such a way as to fulfill the entire sweep of the Hebrew scriptures, from the creation of the world to the calling of Abraham to the exodus from Egypt and straight through the prophets of exile to Babylon and return. The word law is an unfortunate translation for the word Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. I fear that when we call the Torah the law, we focus unduly narrowly on the notoriously boring legalistic material of the first five books. Also, the word law in contemporary English is apt to stir up negative associations. Associations with things like pedantic, hair-splitting technicalities, the sort of thing that lawyers excel at, right? Torah, though, doesn't mean law. It means teaching. I said last time that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching. In many ways, just as any philosopher or sage would have done. And that remains true today. He is teaching not a new teaching but a fulfillment of the Torah, the teaching, and a fulfillment of the prophetic witness to that teaching. So what does it mean to fulfill? Well, quite literally, it means to fill up, to fill up to the point of fullness, even of overflowing. Jesus in his teaching today is not giving us a replacement for the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures. He is filling that teaching up to the point of fullness. The Hebrew scriptures 
have always been concerned to teach righteousness. And Jesus is doing just the same, teaching righteousness. But he's teaching it to the utmost. He's bringing its teaching to the uttermost. He is completing that teaching. So Jesus is joining his teaching to the tradition of the teaching, the Torah, and the prophetic witness to the Torah. And he's giving us his understanding of what has always been the core of the Torah and the prophets, who called the people back to the Torah again and again and again. The Sermon on the Mount is a teaching on real righteousness. And real righteousness is and always has been something that is only realizable by the entirety of our person. Matthew calls in his gospel this seat of the whole person the heart. Real righteousness demands the commitment of our heart, which is to say our whole selves, the commitment of our whole selves to the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is preaching and whose priorities we saw explained by him the last time I was preaching here. Real righteousness is of the heart or the whole person, and it is this mode of living that is required for the kingdom of heaven. Real righteousness is about brokenness of spirit, about mourning, about meekness, about hunger and thirst for righteousness, about mercy, purity, peacemaking, and even being persecuted for that very same real righteousness. Jesus has just told us that this righteousness, real righteousness, the righteousness of those who live in the kingdom of heaven, must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And now in today's passage, he shows us just what that could mean. And a good teacher does this kind of thing, right? As a teacher, I can pronounce a point, but if I really want to convince you or show you clearly what I have in mind, then I should give you some examples. Today's reading consists of three examples, three illustrations that show us what real righteousness looks like in action. Once again, we cannot be overly literal here because these illustrations are meant to be patterns rather than precepts. What Jesus says in today's reading is not so much his teaching per se, but rather his way of illustrating his teaching. These illustrations all have a common structure. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, on the face of it, that sounds like replacing something old with something new. But Jesus has just got done saying that he has no intention of doing anything like that. He is not contradicting the Torah. What he is doing is offering himself as the authoritative interpreter 
of the Torah's consistent and still valid meaning. Jesus is fulfilling the Torah by overflowing it, not by contradicting it. So just like last time, there is, on the one hand, a totally understandable aspect to our Lord's teaching, and on the other hand, there's a completely outrageous aspect to our Lord's teaching. On the one hand, Jesus aligns himself with the tradition of the Torah. On the other hand, he presents himself as the Torah's definitive expositor. So if you look back and read the prophets, when they call people back to the Torah, they say things like, thus saith the Lord. But when Jesus calls his disciples to hearken to his teaching, he says, I say to you. That's something that no prophet would say. Because the prophets speak only what they have been given by God to speak. But Jesus speaks and teaches with the authority of God himself in the first person. I say to you. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill. And whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. So let's get something straight right away. Is Jesus saying that being angry with someone is just as bad as murdering them. I do not think so. And I don't think the text warrants this false equivalence. The point is that real righteousness demands not just abstinence from murder, which, let's face it, is not that difficult for us to manage, It demands something more. It demands uprooting within myself those habits of thought and feeling that incline me to murder, anger, insults, degradation of others. This is how our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Merely refraining from murder does not fit one for life in the kingdom of heaven. Rather, we must refrain from rage, from disrespect, from contempt. The Torah insists on this too, as did the prophets. Jesus is not saying that the Old Testament was content as long as people were outwardly righteous and gave no thought to their whole persons. He is saying this in an illustration of what it is to fulfill the prophetic demand. And in this respect, he's claiming continuity with that tradition. But insofar as he's claiming to fulfill that tradition, he's saying that his word on these matters is the last word. 
The same holds true for adultery. Adultery is bad. One of the Ten Commandments is definitely against it. Thou shalt not. The Greek here does pick out a person who looks at someone with a lustful intent as being blameworthy. This is a predatory, deliberate intention here, not a casual, passive appreciation. This sort of lustful intent is tantamount to adultery of the heart. But recall that in Matthew's gospel, the heart is not the seat of private interior feeling. The heart is rather shorthand for the whole person. So Jesus is not saying that harboring lustful intent is just as bad as actually committing adultery with someone, because somehow the heart and what goes on inside the heart is as important as your deeds. On the contrary, the point here is that a person's righteousness has been compromised. A person's righteousness is not whole. It is not complete if that person has indulged even the thought patterns and intentions that would lead one to adultery. The Ten Commandments also forbid coveting somebody else's wife as well as adultery. So here, too, there is, in a sense, nothing new. The point is not that lust in your heart is as bad as adultery, because it's not. The point is that the heart is the whole person, and true righteousness aims at making the whole person righteous. That is not possible if our outward deeds are righteous but our thoughts and feelings are of the kind that lead to unrighteous outward deeds. And this is a serious matter. It's so serious that Jesus says, whatever in your life might impede you from accomplishing it, no matter how valuable that thing might be, you should get rid of it. Real righteousness demands that we rid ourselves of anything that would compromise our ability to purify our hearts, to make our whole lives responsive to God, and to fit us for the kingdom of heaven. How about vows? Vows are a very big deal in the ancient world. Being true to your word was incredibly important. There were no mechanisms to enforce what would happen to you if you weren't true to your word, Whereas nowadays, we're surrounded by such mechanisms. We make all kinds of promises. We promise to pay for our house or our car or the things we put on our credit card. But you'll notice that nobody actually believes our word, right? That's why they make us sign a piece of paper. If you look ahead to Matthew chapter 23, you'll see that Jesus condemns the Pharisees there for evading the force of vows by resorting to technicalities. I didn't swear by the temple, I swore by the gold in the temple, right? Well, if our righteousness is to be greater than theirs, then we are not to be evasive hair splitters. Real righteousness 
does not disguise itself under a thousand legal qualifications. The really righteous say yes to what they intend, no to what they don't intend, and they leave it at that. In these three ways, Jesus is showing us, through vivid illustrations, how we are to behave in the kingdom of heaven. In short, we are to be people of integrity, people of wholeness, people of the heart. We cannot be content with refraining from murder or adultery. We are to uproot the root causes of murder and adultery. We are to reject hatred and insult. We are to reject lust and predation. We are not to deal with others by promising things we have no intention of delivering. Instead, in all things, our words should match our deeds. Real righteousness is exhibited when what we do aligns with what we say. This is what it means to fulfill the law. This is real righteousness. And that is what Jesus is teaching us. Amen.